0: Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, SoulCityChurch.com. So I just want to take a moment and pray for anyone who puts the toilet paper under. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're gonna we're gonna excise some demons in here this morning, but not those. Not those. Well, Soul City Church, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, If we haven't had the chance... To meet yet. Uh, My name is John. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and every now and then I have the honor uh, of getting up here to speak with you all for a few minutes, and I'm really looking forward to our time together. Uh, But before we dive into kind of the main piece of what we're going to be talking about today, I I I wanted to ask you all a quick question. Has anyone in this room ever heard of something called the Mandela Effect? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. Okay, so several of you have heard of this. For those who haven't, the Mandela Effect Uh, It it is a social cognitive theory that rose in popularity sort of around the early 2010s. And and the idea is it's basically any phenomenon where a culture or society collectively misremembers something whether it's a story or an image or or even a historical event. And this theory, it gets its name based on a study that was done that showed that hundreds of South Africans vividly remember seeing news coverage of Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. However, as many of you in this room know, Mandela was eventually released from prison and didn't pass until 2013. And yet there are hundreds of people in South Africa who swear they remember seeing news coverage about it. In this case, the collective consciousness of South Africa just made up an event that didn't actually happen. And so I was doing some research on this this week, and I found so many wild examples of the Mandela effect alive and well in our world and culture. And I thought I would share just a few with you. This uh, this one's for all my 90s kids out there. What famous childhood storybook family is this? Who are these people? The Berenstain Bears, of course. If you grew up in like the 80s and 90s, you may know this lovely bear family. You may have read, you know, some of their books. Maybe uh, I watched the TV show. The Berenstain Bears, they were an institution in my childhood. But what if I told you that their name is not Berenstain? Look at this. Do you see it? Their name is Baron Stain. I'm not kidding. Look at the books. Here they are. You can go to your mama's house and you can check them. All the books say Baron Stein. And yet hundreds of us, even thousands, of us as kids, we remember these little bears as Baron Steen. But over time, we just tweak the name just a little bit. I blew some minds in here with that one. Uh, This one, maybe not as much, but let's say your house is getting a little stinky and you might want to freshen things up a bit. You might go in the cabinet and spray some Febreze. Yes, there it is. Lovely Febreze. Odors be gone. What if I told you? That's not how you spell Febreze. Show them the real one.
1: Febreze.
0: I'm not kidding. That is actually, I went to their website this week to double check, and that is how you spell Febreze. Anyone else would have misspelled it like 10 times out of 10? 100%. 100%. This is the power of the Mandela effect, that over time, our understanding or our recollection of something can just get tweaked. It can just get twisted or warped ever so slightly until our perception Is actually very different from reality. And you see, I believe that there is a Mandela effect going on in the church, specifically in the American church over the last hundred years or so. Specifically, specifically, when it comes to how we as American Christians understand and talk about the gospel. And I want to be real clear because I know that can be a pretty weighty term that people throw around a lot. So to be real clear right from the top, when I say the gospel in this message, I'm talking about God's main mission in the world. That's what we're talking about today. What is God's main goal? What is the main work that God is up to in the world I believe that there is a Mandela effect going on in the church and in our culture when it comes to how we understand God's main goal and mission. And this morning, we're starting a brand new series, as Jarrett said, called The Gospel According to Me. And each week, we're going to investigate and we're going to look at different ways that the gospel message has been tweaked or shifted or distorted over time. And we're going to explore some of the ways that the church at large, some of the ways that our culture, and even some of the ways that you and I misunderstand or misuse the good news of Jesus. Because I don't know if you know this, but we all have a gospel. You have a gospel. You have an understanding or you have an answer when I ask you the question, what is God all about? What is God up to in the world? What is God's desire? What is God's main mission in the world? Whether you're able to articulate it or not, you carry some idea of who God is and what he's all about. And that's formed over time in our lives. Maybe it was formed heavily by your parents or the family that you grew up in. Maybe it was formed previously by by a church you used to go to. Maybe for you that has been formed here in one way, shape, or form. And our hope over the next several weeks is to maybe take some of those false or inaccurate ideas of who God is and just begin to shatter those. Just begin to push those aside so that we might come to a fresh understanding of what the true good news of Jesus is. And I think and I believe we will find that that good news, that gospel, is far more beautiful and far more life-giving and far more transformative than any of the false virgins, and maybe even far better than anything we ever imagined. So that's where we're headed over the next three weeks. And as I mentioned, we're gonna start by looking at a false or misunderstood version of the gospel. And so this week, the false gospel that we're gonna tackle is this. I heard a couple, Ooh. God wants you to be happy. Now, when when I say those words, and when I tell you that that is a false gospel, I imagine that there may be some thoughts that pop into your head. There might be some feelings that you begin to feel in your spirit. Now, wait a minute, John. Doesn't God want what is good for humanity? You're not suggesting some regressive form of Christianity that demonizes any positive emotion as worldly or sinful, are you? I grew up in that. I'm not interested in that. Well, now, wait a minute, John. Doesn't the Bible actually talk a lot about joy? Like, doesn't the Bible say that at the end of all things, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be no more night, no more tears, no more pain? Kind of sounds like we're all going to be happy. Well, now, wait a minute, John. Are you saying that God just wants me to be sad all the time? I want to be really clear up front and make one clarification. When I say that this is a false gospel, I'm not saying that this statement is 100% all the time completely untrue. I'm not saying that the Christian life should be completely devoid of things like laughter or moments of happiness. I actually believe that those things can be marks of the Christian life, proof of a living, transforming relationship with Jesus. So I want to be really clear. I am not suggesting, as some in my position have previously suggested maybe in your life, that happiness is the enemy of a life with God. I'm saying that this is not the gospel. And remember, we talked earlier that the gospel is God's main mission in the world, And so, while, you know, a, a relationship with God may produce significant feelings of happiness in our life from time to time, what I'm suggesting is that God's main goal, God's main hope, God's main desire for humanity is not that we would merely be happy from time to time. Because, let's be honest, if, if that was the goal of the gospel, Jesus would have never said, like, half the things he said. Like if this was the main goal of the gospel, Jesus would have never said things like, in this world, you will have trouble. He wouldn't have needed that promise. Jesus wouldn't have started the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon he ever gave by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when people insult you when people persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you, Jesus wouldn't have said those things if the personal happiness gospel was the main point. If personal happiness was the main point of the gospel, then why did many of the early church leaders who who began to spread the gospel message throughout the world, why did the vast majority of them face things like persecution and imprisonment and even execution? And again, I'm not trying to depress you And I'm not trying to make happiness the enemy. What I'm saying is if you look at the evidence, there's got to be something deeper than this. Like there's got to be something greater. There has to be something more foundational, more redemptive, and ultimately more transformative that God is up to and that God desires for us. And in order for us to discover what that is, I'm gonna need you to go ahead, grab a Bible. Underneath the seat in front of you, there is a Soul City Bible tucked away right there. I'm gonna need you to turn it to Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is toward the middle of your Bible. Uh, Isaiah 53 in the Soul City Bible. That is on page 600. If you're worshiping with us online, maybe open up your phone, a tab, grab your own Bible. Open up to Isaiah chapter 53. While you're turning there, I wanna give you just a little bit of context. So for those who aren't familiar... The biblical story, it begins on page one with God and humans living in unity, in harmony, in this beautiful, close relationship with one another. But it doesn't take very long for humans to turn away from and rebel against God, thus breaking that unity and the harmony and the trust within that relationship. And one way to essentially read the rest of the Bible is to read it as an archive of the different times and ways that God and humans sought to reconcile that original relationship. That's one way of reading the Bible. What we see all throughout is God constantly calling humanity back into relationship with himself. And God did this in many different ways. And one of the main groups of people that God used to call humanity back to himself was a group of people called the prophets. And prophets were men and women that sort of acted as God's mouthpiece in the world. The job of a prophet is to speak the words of God to the people of God. And Isaiah, the person who wrote the book that we're just going to be reading from, Isaiah was one of those prophets, Which brings us to Isaiah chapter 53, in which this prophet is giving a prophecy about something that is coming sometime in the future. And the prophet is saying that in the future, there is going to be this promised savior figure. That there's gonna be a future chosen anointed person through whom God is going to reconcile that relationship. And in verse four, the prophet speaks to how this future promised figure is going to accomplish that reconciliation. Let's read. Isaiah chapter 53, verse four. Surely he, meaning that promised figure, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us what? Peace. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are what? Healed. We all, all of us like sheep, we have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the crookedness of all of us. Now, there's a few little details from this passage that that I really want to highlight for us real quick. Obviously, this future promised person is going to suffer a great deal, according to Isaiah's prophecy. But that suffering is definitely not going to be in vain, is it? The text says that that suffering of that future figure, that suffering is actually going to accomplish or yield something for us as humanity. The text says that that punishment will bring us peace. And the biblical word for peace is a little bit different than our modern word for peace. Our modern word for peace essentially can be boiled down to just an absence of conflict, That's how we think about peace. But the biblical word for peace actually goes a little bit further. The biblical word for peace, it conjures an image of something that has been broken apart. And peace means putting those pieces back together again. That's the biblical word for peace. It's restorative. It means to repair something. And the text also says that by his wounds, we are healed. You think about a physical wound on your body like a cut or something, and how the skin can split open, the process of healing is taking what has been broken apart and putting it back together again. And that doesn't just describe physical healing in our bodies, but but that can describe healing in our minds. That can describe the healing of a broken heart. That can describe healing in a relationship. Taking something that's been broken, whether it's trust, or our sense of self-worth or identity, or unity within a community, taking something that's been broken and putting it back together again. You're starting to see a theme. You see, by using the language of peace, By using the language of healing, the prophet is revealing God's true heart and God's true hope for humanity. Isaiah 53 communicates really clearly what God's main mission is, and it is a whole lot more than just for us to be happy. But God's main goal is for us to be whole. That's the work that God is all about. God's goal was never to take a sad humanity And to to make us momentarily happy. But God's goal was to take a hurting humanity and offer us and invite us into healing. God's goal is to take the broken places in our world and to take the broken places in our lives and to begin to bring peace, to put the pieces back together, to take what's fractured and to make it whole again. That's what God is all about. That's the work that God is up to in the world. That's what he has been up to and that's the work that he is still doing today in the lives of everyday normal people like you and me. That's who our God is. That's what he is about. I can think about my own own journey of life and faith, which I can tell you has been a journey. And one way that I could sum it up for you is it has been a journey toward greater wholeness and greater healing for me. And I can also share with you that many of the things that God has used to contribute to a greater sense of wholeness and healing in my life, most of them didn't make me very happy in the moment. I think about the work that God has done in my life, the powerful work that God has done through mentors. These are people who I have a relationship with them where I give them permission to call me out. Like I actively tell them, tell me the truth, even when I don't want to hear it even when it bruises my very fragile ego. I can tell you, some of the things that my friend Dave, some of the things that Pastor Jarrett has told me over the years didn't make me very happy in the moment. I might not have received them very well in the moment, but I know that they were for my good. I know that they were for, God was using them for my growth and my transformation. I think about the work that God has done in my life through the practice of confession, Oh, that's one we don't talk about much around here. Confession is the practice of coming humbly before God and actually naming and saying out loud all the ways that you've gotten it wrong recently. It's a powerful thing. It doesn't always feel good. I think about the times where I've been in relationship where I have lied to someone or I've done something that has hurt them or broke their trust and I have to confess that. I choose to confess that to them, to look at them and name it and apologize. Doesn't make me very happy. Certainly doesn't make them very happy when they find out. But I'll tell you what, it often is the starting place for things becoming whole again, both between us and within myself. And so I wonder if today, I wonder if some of us have just been carrying a slightly tweaked understanding of who God is and what he's really about and what this life of faith is about. Because let's be honest, we live in a culture that certainly lifts up things like personal happiness above almost everything else. You know, we live in a world that kind of says, hey, your personal happiness should be your main goal. And in a world like that, it's really easy to see how our faith can get kind of conflated into that. And the main point of faith then is just to make me happy. So then if anything is ever said or or done in church that makes me not happy, or if I ever come across anything in the Bible that doesn't make me happy, then I should throw it out. Or I should ignore it. Or maybe then faith isn't really for me. Or it can also be really easy in a culture like that to kind of push faith off to the side. And think of it as a secondary thing as we pursue that more main goal of whatever makes me happy. And we kind of keep faith in a reserve for when like I'm going through a really difficult time. Like when I'm going through something really hard, then I will turn to God. I might turn to God for a season when it feels all overwhelming. I want you to know today that God wants so much more than just to be a get out of jail free card for you. God wants to show you a freedom that you never knew was possible. God wants to show you a life that Jesus called life and life to the full. Or maybe it's, it's kind of different. Maybe for you, faith and God actually, it feels like an active barrier to your happiness. Because you've been given a different false gospel than the one we're talking about. No one told you that God wanted you to be happy. In fact, maybe they told you the opposite. They told you that God wanted you to be sad, that God wanted you to suffer. Maybe they told you that God has this long list of arbitrary rules that are meant to burden you. Or that God wants you to feel guilt or God wants you to be ashamed. I want to say and I want to name today that is a false gospel. That is not who God is. We're talking about the God that Paul said is working out all things, not for your shame, not for your guilt. God is not working out and orchestrating all things in the universe so that you would feel less than or so that you would feel unworthy. God is working out all things for your good. God is not a barrier to your happiness. God just wants something better than that. God wants the highest and best form of good for you because you are his child. And a good parent wants the highest and best good for their kid. That's how God feels about you. You see, God's God's main ultimate goal is not for us to experience momentary happiness as much as for us to experience eternal, everlasting wholeness. And that's ultimately why he sent that future Savior figure, that promised figure that Isaiah talked about earlier, eventually came in the person of Jesus. And Jesus' ministry was one of time and time again inviting people into greater and greater wholeness. He did it through offering physical healing. He did it through freeing people from relational bondage and abuse and generational sin and trauma. But ultimately, Jesus' ultimate goal was to repair that broken relationship, to repair the beautiful, intimate loving relationship that humans were created to have with their heavenly father and all of that was accomplished on the cross the cross was the punishment that brought us peace that Isaiah talked about you remember and on the cross as he hung there Jesus he cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me Why have you left me? God, why are you far off from me? And theologians point out that this was perhaps the first time that Jesus experienced what it was like to be separated from God. And that's because on the cross, what Jesus was doing is he was taking on our separation and giving us his intimacy with God. On the cross, Jesus took our brokenness and gave us his wholeness. Jesus allowed himself to be wounded so that you and I could be eternally and forever healed. God's goal is for us to be whole and wholeness, completeness, the fullness of all who you were created to be, that is found in Jesus. That's found in saying yes to this Jesus who died so that you could live. This Jesus who emptied himself so that you could experience life and life to the full, both here and in the hereafter. And I I believe that there's a few people here today who are are maybe ready to say that yes to that Jesus. Maybe you've kind of done that before previously, but but since then, your, your life has kind of drifted. Maybe you've spent a decent portion of your life kind of running after that gospel of happiness, running after maybe a bunch of different things that you thought were going to make you happy, but what you found on the other end of that is you just kind of sat and felt empty still. Like you still felt kind of fractured and broken apart. Maybe you're here this morning and your life just kind of feels like it's in pieces. And you need Jesus, who by the way is the prince of peace, to begin to put those pieces back together. And that happens the minute we say yes to him. The minute we say, yes, Jesus, I need your healing. Yes, Jesus, I need you to make me whole. Maybe you don't fully understand all that that will require. Maybe, maybe you can't even articulate exactly or all the things that feel broken, but you know you want to be whole. And that is the gift that God offers in what we would call here a transforming relationship with Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you need to say yes to that Jesus who, by the way, has already said yes to you. He said yes to you on the cross. If you're ready to say yes to Jesus today, I'm actually gonna lead an opportunity for you to do that here in just a few minutes. And so as you contemplate that, all of us right now are going to respond to this message by taking communion together. And this is something we do every month around here, but I cannot think of a more perfect time to do this together. I cannot think of a more perfect physical symbol and reminder of everything we just talked about. For those who aren't familiar, communion, it finds its roots in a story where the night before Jesus went to the cross, he sat around a table with some of his closest friends And as he sat at the table, Jesus took bread, and he broke the bread, and then he said something kind of strange. He held up the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he passed the bread around the table for each of his friends to take a bite. And then he held up a cup, and he said something maybe even stranger. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins passed it around the table so everyone at that table could have a drink and jesus did this he gave us this practice to give us a reminder of the significance and the meaning of the cross that that on the cross just like the bread jesus was broken so that you could be whole that just like that cup jesus he allowed himself to be emptied so that you could be full And so, as you can see right now, our host team, they're beginning to pass the elements around. And as you receive the elements, I actually want to invite you, as this song is sung over you, I want to invite you to just hold those elements in your hands as you contemplate that truth and that reality that there is a God who loves you enough and who desires so much for you to be whole that he was willing to allow himself to be broken that he was willing to pour out all of himself all of his his very life so that you could experience the fullness of what this life and the life beyond is Julian's going to sing this song I invite you into that space with God to contemplate the reality of Jesus and the cross and then I'll come back up to lead you through the taking of the elements in just one minute
1: built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust Dare not trust the sweetest friend. The
0: you to stand in this room if you're able and as we take the bread may you remember that Jesus was broken so that you could be whole let's take the bread together As we take the cup, may you remember that Jesus willingly allowed himself to be emptied so that you could experience life and life to the full. Let's take the cup together. And now as we as we pray, now is the moment where I want to invite anyone here this morning who feels like they need to say yes to Jesus. Again, whether maybe you need to say yes again. after I just talked to someone after the 9 a.m. service who I hadn't seen in a long time, and they were sharing with me how this season has kind of been one of turning away, kind of been one of drifting, as Jarrett talked about earlier. Maybe you need to say yes again to the God who who never left you. Or maybe all of this is starting to click for you for the first time. Maybe today, maybe over the course of your time here, God has just been breaking down all of those false ideas of who you thought he was and what you thought he was about. And maybe today you're coming face to face with this Jesus who you realize is for you, is for your highest and best good. The most proper response is just to say yes, Jesus, whatever that means. I want to be with you. So if you're here this morning and you're ready to say yes to Jesus, I'm just going to invite you to pray this prayer along with me. There's nothing special or you know anything about the prayer. What matters is your heart posture toward God. So I want to invite everyone to pray with me right now. And if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, you can just simply pray this prayer after me in the quietness of your own heart or you can say it out loud if you want to say yes to Jesus just simply say Jesus I say yes to you I confess the times and seasons where I've turned away from you Jesus I need you to heal me Jesus, I believe you can make me whole. I say yes to you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the type of God who wants our highest and our best good. God, you don't want momentary, just momentary fleeting feelings. But God, you want our wholeness. You want us to experience the fullness of all of who you are. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for a God who is is willing to lay down his life so that we could experience true life and everlasting life, life to the full. Thank you. Thank you for the sacrificial type love that you have for each and every one of us. And thank you for the gospel the truth that there is a God who loves us so much that he actually longs for our best. And that that best, God, it is so much better than anything we ever imagined. I pray that we would know that. I pray that the people of Soul City would know that today, that they would know the truth of the gospel, that you would tear away any sort of falsehood, tear down any sort of lie, tear down any sort of false version of that idea, and replace it with the true, redemptive, good, beautiful, kind, inclusive, life-giving good news of Jesus right now. And it is to this Jesus, the strong cornerstone, the foundation on which everything else is built and will be built and will stand. It is to this Jesus that we now sing. It is Christ alone. Christ alone, you are the cornerstone. We love you, Jesus. And we sing to you and we praise you now. Amen.